You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. Today is January 14th, 2024, and this is episode 260 of Lighthearted. Joining me today as co-host is Cindy Johnson, award-winning volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Happy New Year. Hi, Jeremy. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you for co-hosting today. As you have done well over 100 times, I don't know the exact count, but I know it's it's way over 100 uh, (laughs) since this podcast was launched back in June 2019. As I mentioned recently when our friend Michelle was Mm co-hosting, you and Michelle and everyone who has co-hosted have done this as volunteers. And I just want to say how much I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Oh, well, you're very welcome. Thank you for including me uh, in the podcast. I'm happy to be part of what I'm going to call our our little corner of lighthouse preservation. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really nice way of putting it. So, uh, again, I really do appreciate everything you and Michelle do, and uh, I'm amazed that we're we're getting towards 300 episodes of this thing. To be wow! And it, it well, and when you said June 2019. That was that was where I you know the number of episodes yeah. didn't surprise me so much, but the time frame wow right we'll have to do something special for our fifth year anniversary yes coming up in, a few for, in June yeah for Definitely. sure I've got some ideas we'll talk about okay. that later moving along we have two very interesting interviews today in a few minutes we'll hear a conversation with Julie Barrow about the upcoming restoration at Pigeon Point Lighthouse in California and then we'll have a special be a lighthouse segment. But first, has anything Lighthouse-related happened on this date in history? Yes. On January 14, 1843, Josephine McWilliams Freeman was born in Maryland. When she was seven years old, her parents sold some of their property to the federal government for the establishment of the Blackestone Lighthouse. Josephine's brother and their father served as keepers for a combined 18 years, while Josephine married and had four children. In 1876, Josephine was appointed keeper at $520 per year. She went on to serve 36 years as keeper of the Blackstone Lighthouse, and she was succeeded by her son when she died at the age of 69. You know, there were family dynasties of keepers at some other lighthouses, but there weren't many where members of the same family were in charge for well over a half century. I think that's pretty unusual. Josephine and her family survived on her salary for all those years. Uh, Her husband hunted, fished, gardened, raised cows, hogs, chickens, and turkeys. Josephine, her daughters, and a housekeeper all made their own clothes, sheets, and curtains. The old Blackstone Lighthouse was destroyed by accident in 1956 when a shell from a nearby Navy facility exploded and set it on fire. But a replica of the lighthouse was completed in 2008, and the St. Clement's Island Museum runs tours there. Yeah, I'm uh, actually planning a trip down that way uh, this spring. I hope I might get out to that that replica lighthouse. It's not one I've seen yet. Hope to make it there. So let's go ahead and introduce our first interview for today. So please help me out, Cindy. Sure, Jeremy. California's iconic Pigeon Point Lighthouse, located on the central coast between Santa Cruz and San Francisco, has been guiding mariners since 1872. It's tied with Point Arena for the tallest operating lighthouse on the west coast at 115 feet. The historic light station is managed by California State Parks and the former Keeper's Housing serves as a youth hostel. 
The lighthouse has been closed to climbing since December 2001 after the collapse of some of the brickwork from near the top of the tower. The first order Fresnel lens was removed from the lantern room due to the damage and is now on display in the fog signal building. California State Parks recently announced an upcoming $16 million restoration of the lighthouse, which is beginning early this year. During the rehabilitation, contractors will refurbish or replace all the ironwork throughout the tower, and masonry elements will also be repaired or replaced as needed. Julie Barrow is the Special Projects Coordinator at Pigeon Point Light Station State Historic Park. She was my guide when I visited Pigeon Point in the spring of 2015, and it was great to talk with her again uh, to get an update on the exciting things that are happening there. So let's listen to my conversation with Julie Barrow now. I am speaking today with Julie Barrow, who is the the, uh, Special Projects Coordinator at Pigeon Point Light Station State Historic Park in California. Hi, Julie. Thanks so much for doing this today. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Did I get that right? Pigeon Point Light Station State Historic Park? That's correct. It's a very long name for a very (laughs) small park. Yeah, well, I've been there. Uh, As you might remember, I was there in May of 2015. I was working on a a guidebook at the time for West Coast Lighthouses, and you gave me an excellent tour there. And I I just want to thank you again for that. It's hard to believe it's uh, almost nine years ago now. I know. It's unbelievable. And by the way, we're speaking the week between Christmas and New Year. So so Happy New Year. Happy Uh, New Year. At the time when I was there in 2015, I believe your title was the you were the docent coordinator mm-hmm. for the, the park. And now I believe uh, your title is special projects coordinator. And I'm right. just wondering uh, what uh, kinds of things do you do in that position? Well, it's it's uh, one of those catch all kinds of jobs where pretty much anything related to the buildings or the, the park itself are things that I get involved with. So most recently, one of the projects that we did was to get a new roof put onto the fog signal building because last winter's atmospheric rivers pretty much kept ripping parts of it off. Every time that happened, we'd get waterfalls and raindrops coming into the fog signal building because there's no attic. Uh, There's just a slat ceiling that the roof is basically put on top of. Mm -hmm. So it was time to get that done. I've also uh, worked on refurbishing the old oil kerosene bunker that sits out front of the lighthouse. Uh, We did lead abatement and repainted it inside and out and then developed and installed brand new exhibits, exhibit panels, just in time for the pandemic to shut it down for a couple of years. So Mm -hmm. it, uh, that was one of the things that was bittersweet uh, about that project was it was hardly ever open. You know, it's been open for a couple of years only to be shut down as we move towards construction because it will be part of the construction zone. So in your position as projects coordinator, you are involved in this upcoming restoration, right? Are you Correct. basically the point person for state parks with, for that? I'm, I'm the kind of on-the-ground person. Uh, my boss, uh, who is a, a senior parks and recreation specialist uh, for the Santa Cruz District of California State Parks, is the primary point person. And 
because she handles a variety of parks and all of the facilities and construction that may be going on at those parks. I'm kind of her right-hand person at Pigeon Point. I'm sure there'll be plenty to plenty to do once this uh, oh, gets, yes. gets going. Absolutely. Yeah, you need somebody on the ground, like you say. Uh, yeah. So I, I want to ask a couple of questions that I'm wondering about, and I, I think uh, a lot of our listeners would probably be wondering too. The structural uh, problems happened with the lighthouse back in 2001, I believe. Correct. Uh, kind of some of, some of the, the bricks actually fell to the ground. Do I have that right? Um, what happened was the upper belt course had two large pieces of, of cast iron and brick okay. break off. Um, so that truly compromised the structural integrity of the top part of the building because yeah. of all the weight of the watch room and the lantern room, the Fresnel lens, all mm -hmm. of that up above it was in danger of just kind of imploding at that point. I remember when that happened. But my question is, why uh, has it taken this long, uh, 22, 23 years for the restoration yeah. to get, get going? So you're right. The, the damage initially occurred right about this time of year right between Christmas and New Year's of 2001, where these two big pieces, each weighing three to 400 pounds, came down. Mm -hmm. Coast Guard closed access to the building and fenced it off. At that point, they somewhere in the next year or so, year or two, they decided to excess it to basically get rid of it. And so there was a a process through the National Park Service and Department of Interior to identify a nonprofit or state organization, state or local organization to take over the property. Yep. And since California State Parks had been operating under agreement with the Coast Guard since 1980 as a park, we were ultimately selected to receive the property. And that happened in the spring of 2005, I think, that they had the so-called conveyance ceremony. It then, the property then had to go through a, a lengthy process of water rights, mineral rights, you know, all of the stuff that would go on with uh, title transfer. It also got caught up in the recession of 2007 through nine where uh, the state said, you know, even though we're getting the property for free, we realize there's going to be maintenance costs and operational costs. So we're not accepting any land that has that kind of resp uh, responsibility that comes with it. So mm -hmm. it wasn't until 2011, I call it one of the world's longest escrows, it wasn't until 2000, the fall of 2011 that title fully transferred to the state. And very quickly, one of the first things that we did, we had been raising money through private donations with a couple of our partner nonprofit groups, California State Parks Foundation and Coastside State Parks Association. And we had raised sufficient funds to immediately bring the lens down and put it on display in our fog signal building and to do some emergency stabilization around the upper part of the lighthouse, particularly that, that broken belt course. So we continued to try to raise the funds privately. The activity wasn't there 
lots of different reasons. The funding uh, didn't come through, donation funding didn't come through. So ultimately in 2019, the state allocated about $9 million uh, towards the project. So we thought, and, and we had been thinking we would do it in phases. So that $9 million was gonna go towards the worst of the damage up at the top. So we started into that process. A year into that process, we were just about ready to, to we just about had the bid package ready to go. And the huge wildfires that hit the San Francisco Bay Area uh, hit in August of 2020. Mm -hmm. And one of those fires was called the CZU Lightning Complex Fire. Big name, big fire um, that came within just a couple of miles of the park. So that stopped pro you know, the process for a period of time. And because of that, delay, the state was able to allocate an additional chunk of money um, that gave us what we needed to, to move forward with the project as a whole, mm -hmm. which then complicated things because every, all the plans and everything had to be put back together. <laughs> so that created some delays and a new review process. Yeah. So finally, here we are, and we have a contract signed and work is scheduled to start in the next two weeks. So in early January of 2024. Mm -hmm. And we're very excited about that. I'll bet. Yeah, I'm excited too. And I'm on the other side of the country. It's uh, <laughs> it's, it's great to see. And thanks for the rundown on that. And uh, somebody once said Rome wasn't built in a day. So oh my gosh. It'll be yeah. worth, worth waiting for, for sure. Um, another thing that I think people might wonder when they see news stories about this, they, and you just talked about it, the amount of money going into it, $16 million. Why so much money? Why so much money? Part of the reason um, is the kind of structural damage that occurred originally. This is a 115-foot structure. It's unreinforced brick and mortar. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the initial damage was the uh, breaking away of big pieces of the cast iron upper belt course and brickwork. Mm -hmm. When the engineers did their assessments of the building, they also found that almost all of the exterior ironwork, particularly up at the top, um, was likely at a minimum needed refurbishment, but much of the upper, the the upper two galleries were probably going to have to be fully replaced. Uh, at the time, there was some of the ironwork supporting the lower gallery they thought could, could be just refurbished. At this point, I don't know. But going on down the tower, the lower belt courses around the base of the tower are also going to have to be refurbished and or replaced. So that's ironwork on the exterior. Then you get into the brickwork, and certainly because of the 20-plus year delay, the costs have gone up. The building has sustained um, repeated frequent water intrusion. Over the years, we've done everything we can to kind of minimize that, to find all of the obvious leaks and holes to make sure that water doesn't get in there, but just the simple fact of the 
condensation, the salt air has caused the, the brickwork and mortar to uh, crumble, literally crumble. And so as you go down from the service room below the watch room, you see the crumbling brick and mortar. Uh, and that has gone from probably three feet below that decking area, the, the, the service room decking area, down probably 15 feet, uh, particularly on the southwest side, which is where the storms hit. And stress cracks have started to form as well in the interior brickwork. I think the exterior brickwork may be in better shape, but because I can't climb outside and look at it, I don't know. But the the damage that we see on the inside doesn't seem to be repeated visually on the outside. But they'll have to work all of that brick and mortar, uh, particularly on the inside uh, construction. And it is a double wall construction, by the way. So that may further complicate how they go about um, the actual uh, repair work. Um, it's a, a lighthouse within a lighthouse, basically. The ironwork of the stairs and decks inside the building seems to be in fairly good shape, but all of that will have to be refurbished as well. The lantern room itself has to be totally refurbished. The glasswork all needs to be replaced. So it really is I call it a top to bottom inside and out project. And because it's 115 feet tall and of course has to follow historic standards, all of that really ups the price tag on the project. Sure. I have no doubt the cost is completely justified. Uh, but I, again, I think people might be surprised when they see that number. One of the reasons why the state of California is, is committed to uh, restoring this lighthouse is because of its role in the maritime history of the state. It was uh, one of the key areas as ships came by on their way to San Francisco. And not having that lighthouse during the gold rush, the, the beginning of the gold rush, was very detrimental to shipping. Um, we lost a number of ships off that point. So getting that lighthouse established there was critical to the development of the state and the northern part of the state. Yeah, well, I'm glad you made that point. Uh, the thought occurred to me that it would probably be less expensive to build a new lighthouse, to build a replica of the lighthouse. <laughs> I'm not saying that's a good idea. Uh, I think you're doing the right thing and re restoring. And I, I also imagine that the materials that have to be used in this restoration have to be historically correct. You can't just use modern materials without approval. Right. That's um, right. So that, that's um, the expense as well, I'm sure. Certainly, certainly everything that is visible has to be of a historic nature in terms of the materials used. They will be using um, stainless steel and, you know, possibly concrete inside the walls, but the anything that's visible would be um, traditional construction materials. So it's they'll they'll be doing some seismic work as well, which will probably be the stainless steel component. But uh, that all has to be hidden. Interesting. So the ironwork, the visible ironwork on the outside, will be iron. They'll actually use cast iron rather than steel. That's that's correct. That's my understanding. 
So you mentioned already uh, the state funding. Is that entirely what's paying for this this work, the funding from the state? At this point, that's that's what we think will happen. We do have a reserve fund from the private donations that were raised earlier that uh, may also go towards this if there are uh, extenuating circumstances as they as they do the work. And when is the work scheduled to begin? And uh, is there a timeline for how long it should all take? The construction is actually set to begin in early January. Uh, last week, they came in and deployed the construction boxes, the storage containers, and the construction zone fencing. Uh, over the next, they may even be moving some additional supplies and um, equipment in this week or next week, and then construction hopefully will begin uh, January 8th. The project is scheduled to take approximately two years if all goes well. Okay. I know it's pretty hard to pinpoint a, a date two <laughs> years like, from like now. your kitchen project, you know. Oh geez. We're 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 hoping it won't go like that. Everybody's well, experienced things like that. Yeah. I hope not. Uh so you just mentioned they uh bring materials and so forth. Uh who is they? Who's actually doing this work? So the general contractor is a company out of Moraga, California, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area, called Sustainable Group. And their CEO, Roger Weichel, is a retired Coast Guard officer whose primary role for much of his career was working with lighthouses and on lighthouses to refurbish them and such. And their subcontractor is ICC Commonwealth out of New York. Between those two companies, probably they have the experience of working with almost 100 lighthouses around the United States and probably the world. So we're very, very pleased that we have this group on board to work the project. ICC Commonwealth um, had done some of the early stabilization work for the lighthouse. They were uh, involved in bringing down the lens uh, with a team of lampists. So they're very familiar with the lighthouse. Um, and we're very fortunate to have both companies involved in this project. People might know ICC by their former name, International Chimney Corporation. Correct. I think they're under new management now, as I understand. Um, that's my understanding. I think they've merged with some other companies. Mm -hmm. I don't know the exact yeah. history. But as International Chimney, of course, they also are responsible for the moving of several lighthouses. Incredible yes. projects like Cape Hatteras in North Carolina, for one. And a few, right, and Gayhead. Gayhead, Martha's Vineyard, uh, mm -hmm. Sankey Head, Nantucket, and some others. Absolutely incredible what they what they did. Uh, over. The, and But they, I know they've worked on a lot of uh, lighthouse restorations. Right various work like that over the years too. So when this all this work is completed approximately two years from now, will the tower be open for climbing? Uh, that's still under discussion. We need to work on some issues that have come up. So we don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. We are hopeful that it will be, but um, that remains to be seen. Sure, I can understand that. So we've talked a little bit about the lens, or you, you mentioned earlier, the first order, incredible, beautiful first order Fresnel lens that was in the lighthouse was brought down, as you mentioned, and is on display in the fog signal building, right? Mm -hmm, and that's when correct. I was there, you showed it to me. 
people call them the jewels of the lighthouse. Uh, you know, they're works of uh, beautiful functional art, basically. Uh, not they weren't meant to be artworks, but they they are. They're so visually beautiful. Yes. So, is there any plan to put the lens back on the tower? I know that's been talked about over the years. It's been talked about, and and like climbing the tower, there are a variety of issues that still have to be worked out. If the lens does go back up, that will be a separate project from the uh, restoration of the building itself. So it remains to be seen, but apparently there's there's hope that it can be put back. back yes. In. Yeah. The Coast Guard uh, obviously doesn't own the lighthouse anymore. Cal- the, right. the California State Parks does. Coast Guard still maintains the aid to, aid to navigation. Is that correct? The light. That's correct. Lens? Yeah. Yes. So I imagine they will have a, a big say in whether the lens goes back in as well. Right. They currently operate an LED strobe uh, on the upper outer balcony of the, the lighthouse. And by the way, it still produces one white flash every 10 seconds, just like the Fresnel lens did and mm-hmm. every other automated beacon that's been uh, at the lighthouse. So it was a rotating Fresnel lens? It is a rotating Fresnel lens. It has 24 vertical panels, produces 24 beams of light, and it's pretty spectacular. Yeah. Uh, if if we can get it back there, we really are looking forward to re-upping periodic lightings. Like I say, right. that remains to be seen because it is a priceless artifact. Yeah. And so there are there are questions of security. Um, environmental controls, because it is now considered an artifact, regular maintenance, all of those things have to be taken into consideration in order to protect it. Because it is, we're very fortunate that all 1,008 pieces of glass are there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have no missing pieces, though we have quite a a bit of nicks and dings on on the prisms, but they're all there. That is great. Obviously, that's not always the case. I know there's actually some out there that have had parts replaced, you know, acrylic uh, prisms and so forth. Right. So right. Great to know that yours is intact. Um, and of course, uh, a rotating Fresnel lens is an incredible sight. Uh, the modern LEDs still do the job for the mariner. They, the, right. uh, the light is maybe even seen as far out to sea and all that. But it's a it's a it's a flashing kind of cold light as opposed to the yeah. beautiful rotating warm light that a Fresnel lens projects. And I'll just mention that the Coast Guard, I don't want to speak for the Coast Guard, but they seem to be more open to this type of thing for putting to putting Fresnel lenses back in lighthouses. Montauk, New York is an example where just a few weeks ago the lens, historic Fresnel lens that was on display in their museum was put back in the lighthouse and is now the aid to right. navigation again. Right. So such things are happening. So I'm hopeful. Right. And we will be we will be in consultation with the Coast Guard. One of the things that is um, somewhat unique about Pigeon Point is that uh, when we received title for the light station uh, itself, the property and the, all of the buildings, including the tower, we also received title for the lens. So we... State of California actually owns the lens rather than the U.S. Coast Guard. That's important. And that's that's important, but it it doesn't mean we won't be working hand-in-hand with the Coast Guard to make sure. these decisions. Yeah, yeah. They certainly and have a lot more experience than we in the state of California have with, yeah. with uh, managing lenses. Yeah, and of course, there's Lampus that would help with that, too, as you Correct. know. There's only a... 
only three or four of them uh working yeah in if that yeah <laughs> there are only th three still active that i'm aware of yeah so uh hopefully they'll be around a, a while right. so back to the uh the work in general over the next couple of years as it's going on as this uh construction rehabilitation work is actually happening will the park remain open to the public Yes, the park will remain open to the public. Uh, the grounds will be open daily from sunset to eight, or excuse me, from 8 a.m. to sunset. The Fox Signal building where our visitor center is located and our park store will be open Friday through Monday, 10 to 4. The associated hostel on the lighthouse property is also open uh, for overnight accommodations. Okay. So we're imagine. very excited about being able to keep the park open. Yeah. Hopefully people staying in the hostel will be early risers because I imagine the contrast <laughs> will be starting starting early in the morning. They usually do. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's good to know that it'll still be still be open and people can still see that incredible lens. When I was there, when I was there in the spring, I just want to mention I was there in early May. The wildflowers are incredible. It was so yes. beautiful there. Uh, anyway. Yes, we have we have amazing wildlife at the park and in the surrounding area. Um, not to mention springtime is one of the best times of the year to visit the park for the gray whale migration as they take their gray whale calves north. They come right up against the rocks outside the point. Mm -hmm. So it's it, I like to say it's some of the best whale viewing along the central California coast because you don't have to get on a boat. You don't have to pay for it, and you won't get seasick. I know there are some points along the coast where they count the the gray whales during the migration. Is Pigeon Point one of those places? Uh, you know, we don't have uh, counting, uh, which nobody has ever thought to do that. Well, maybe there's another yeah. enough other points uh, not too far yeah. from there where people do that, but I know that that is a, a thing. So anything else you want to mention when people visit there, they get to see the uh, the fog signal building and just kind of stroll around the grounds. Is there anything where we haven't mentioned yet that's an attraction for people to see when they're there? Wildlife, we almost always have harbor seals uh, out on the rocks at low tide right behind uh, the fog signal building. We have this time of year, our neighboring parks have a lot of amazing things going on. Uh, Año Nuevo State Park is about five miles south of us where the northern elephant seal comes on shore to mate. And the wintertime uh, is their pupping season, pupping and mating season. Uh, so there's a lot of activity. We usually get one or two elephant seals on the beach down below the lighthouse. The pelicans going by are always amazing, as well as a variety of other birds. We have uh, black oyster catchers, pigeon guillemots, lots of different gulls. It's it's just there's always something different going on at the park. It, yeah, you know yeah. you can come back every day, you know whether you work there or you just like to visit, and there's always something different. Yeah. It's it's just a wonderful place to visit. Yes. Uh, and a lot of lighthouse lovers are also birders. They, there's yes. Two uh, hobbies seem to intersect for, for a lot of people. Right. And uh, also, you mentioned the elephant seals. They're incredible. When I was out there, I uh, saw them at uh, Piedras Blancas uh, mm -hmm. along the, the beach there. And yeah, they're right what, up against right up against the highway there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm walking down the sidewalk and uh, yeah. the, the there's elephant seals maybe 10 feet away from me, you know. Yeah. Belching. You're breaking the law there. 
Well, you're supposed, you're supposed to stay well, 25 that, feet that away. to the seal. But, yeah. <laughs> they come, like you said, they come close to the road. Maybe it was yeah. a little more than 10 feet, but the noises they make, and I got to yeah. say the smell was pretty incredible, yeah. but what, a, what an experience to see them up close. It it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So uh, a couple of years ago, uh, 2022 was the 150th anniversary for the lighthouse. Correct. I mm-hmm. imagine there were some special events there, but I think you also celebrate the anniversary every, every year. We do celebrate the anniversary every year, but you're right. The 150th anniversary was very special. Um, and we had a variety of activities that day. We had one of the, one of the biggest uh, events that we had was a panel uh, that we referred to as lighthouse luminaries that brought together four different people with a personal connection to the lighthouse. Two were actual keepers, Coast Guard keepers on the property uh, at different times. And uh, one person was the great nephew of the longest serving keeper uh, at the lighthouse in the 20s, 30s, early 40s. And the fourth person was the granddaughter of a woman who died on the worst shipwreck off of Pigeon Point, passenger steamer called the San Juan that collided with or was was collided with an oil tanker and sank within five minutes, taking 75 men, women and children with it. And uh, that panel was moderated by maritime historian and author Joanne Simones, who's written a number of books about Pigeon Point and lighthouses along the Central California coast. And she brought these people together to talk about their connections to the lighthouse. So that was a very emotional time, funny and emotional, because some of the stories were about finding nine foot tires uh, on the beach uh, from one of the most unusual wrecks, an experimental military vessel. Uh, amphibious vessel. And um, others were, as I say, very poignant about um, the loss of this woman's grandmother. What a great thing to bring in people who have that connection to the history of the place. That's so, so important. The human history, obviously, is the most interesting part of it all. Yeah. And and the, the timing was perfect, I guess you would say. Perfect being somewhat relative because the oldest member of the panel passed away a year a week after the anniversary so we we were very very fortunate that he was able to participate yeah well that's one of the big reasons why it's so important to obviously to to record these things uh, none of us are around forever so we've got to record it one way or another so that's just right. great that, that that was done so let me ask you as we kind of wind down here today well, let me, the two-part question here, how long have you actually worked for state parks? And the second part of that question is, after all this time, how do you feel about restoration uh, actually well, getting going here? Let me answer your question this way. I actually started volunteering at the Lighthouse uh, back in 1999 while I was still working full-time for the federal government. Uh, when I took early retirement, Uh, from NOAA's National Marine Sanctuaries Program in 2006, I was finishing up being the project manager for them on funding and developing uh, the interpretive exhibits that are in the Fog Signal Building now. 
And as we finished that up, my state counterpart said, hey, Julie, we've got a part-time job for you. Would you like, would you like it? And I said, sure. So that was in 2007. I've been working for California State Parks since then, primarily working. I, I started out at Anya Nuevo with the elephant seals, but shortly after that, they needed someone up at Pigeon Point. So my boss sent me up there and I've been up there since 2009. So I've been associated with park for almost 25 years now. I remember taking visitors up to the top and sharing uh, that amazing experience with them. So I do hope we have that opportunity to do that. Um, fingers crossed. And I'm just, I have to say last week when I was out there and they were delivering the storage containers, I actually cried because I've waited so long for this to happen. It's, it's an amazing period in the history of that lighthouse. And this restoration is likely to give it hopefully another 150 years. Well, I can, I can completely understand uh, having a lot of emotion seeing this uh, actually uh, becoming a reality. It so is I, reality. Yes, <laughs> it absolutely is. Uh, I have one final question for you for bonus points. And at first, I didn't realize you were uh, started as a volunteer there. So you, mm -hmm. you have some history there for sure. What would you say is so special? What do you love most about Pigeon Point and its lighthouse? I think knowing the connection to California's maritime history is, is really important and sharing that with the public. California's history tends, you know, when you when you're learning California history in school, they tend to focus more on the mission system, the development of the mission system, which brought about the land-based development of California, um, and then the gold rush, and again, focusing landward without taking into consideration how all those people got to the gold rush. So it's, it's really wonderful to be able to share that part of the story. The other piece of it is the, the nature component, how wonderful it is out there. I mentioned earlier, there's always something different going on in terms of the wildlife, in terms of the weather. And again, sharing both the the history of the park and the wildlife of the park with the visitors. And we get 200,000 visitors a year from all over the world. It's probably one of the most visited, uh, light, certainly lighthouses on the West Coast, and one of the most visited California state parks. Mm -hmm. So having the ability to share the wonder of parks with people is part of what makes it so special for me. I just, I just love sharing that with people. Beautifully said. You know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, uh, I live here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. An hour north of me is Portland Head Lighthouse in Maine. Mm -hmm. you might be familiar with it. It's a very iconic lighthouse. A lot of times when people, uh, whether it's in, a, in an advertisement or a TV commercial, whatever they want, a lighthouse, they show Portland Headlight. Right. But I think of Pigeon Point as being the West Coast version of that, very iconic. I think, you, yeah. I think you're right. It is very iconic and is used in all kinds of imagery and logos throughout the West Coast. It's, I, I think in both cases, they're what people think a lighthouse should be. When people visualize a lighthouse in their mind, a lot of them, I think, yes. see, see something. A big, like tall lighthouse. Yeah. A big, tall, uh, white lighthouse on a, on mm -hmm. a beautiful uh, bluff or cliff, uh, you know, beautiful setting. So 
definitely uh, fits that iconic uh, status. So Julie Barrow, I want to thank you so much for doing this today. This is uh, great. I've learned a lot about the project that's just starting, and I know our, our listeners are very interested in, in knowing about this. Many of them, I'm sure, have been there and uh, have followed this uh, from afar uh, in many cases. So uh, I hope we can get updated down the road, uh, talk again as the project goes on. Yeah, and- I, I, I do want to mention that we do have a restoration page on our parks website. If you go to parks.ca.gov slash pigeon point, uh, click on that, and then you'll find the restoration page and we'll provide updates on what's going on uh, out at the park. Excellent. I'm very glad you mentioned that. And I imagine if people uh, didn't have a pen handy, you didn't write down the address you just said. If they Google Pigeon Point Lighthouse Restoration, I imagine they'll find that. Yes, they should get there. Fairly easily. Yeah, yeah. Well, Julie, thanks again so much. And we'll uh, stay in touch about all this. And uh, But again, thanks for your time today and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more about Pigeon Point Lighthouse and the restoration that's getting underway, visit parks.ca.gov and search for Pigeon Point. Or just do a Google search for Pigeon Point Lighthouse and the official site should come up first. There's information about visiting the park with links to a press release about the restoration and info about the youth hostel on the site. Every once in a while on this podcast, we do special segments I like to call Be a Lighthouse about people doing good in the world. Cindy, please help me introduce our next segment. Sure. This past Christmas Day, a very special dinner was served on the second floor of the fire station in Agunquit, Maine. This was the third year in a row that the Agunquit Fire Department hosted a free community dinner on Christmas. Many of the guests at these dinners are people who would otherwise be alone for Christmas. I saw a news story about what they're doing in Agunquit. I thought it was a great story, decided to feature it on this podcast. And then after that, I saw another news story about how the Agunquit Fire Department is helping firefighters in Ukraine. I decided to interview the fire chief in Agunquit, Russell Osgood. So let's listen to that now. I'm speaking with Russell Osgood, who is the fire chief in the beautiful community of Agunquit, Maine. Uh, chief Osgood, thanks very much for being with me today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And Happy New Year, by the way, because we are speaking on January 2nd. You too. Uh, Thank you. So let's talk about this uh, community dinner. I've seen some press coverage of this locally, and I find it uh, just a a wonderful thing and very, very uh, intriguing. So I'd like to talk about it. What led to your first community uh, dinner, first Christmas community dinner at the Ogunquit Fire Station, which I believe was in 2021? What led to that? Yeah, so I I became the fire chief in um, May of 2021, mm-hmm. and uh, at that time, uh, you know, I I retired from uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where I had been a firefighter and worked for the city for 26 years, and I did a lot of community work there through the fire department. And I always had in the back of my mind, I always had it. It, it was an interesting thing to on a, like a holiday on Christmas day or Thanksgiving that, you know, not everybody has a place to go. And I, I kind of recognized that through, you know, working in public safety for a number of years that, you know, we would go to calls where there was, you know, just one person at the house and they didn't have any place to go. And Agunquit's demographics are an older, we're an older community. So, 
my kids are grown. They're out of the house. We used to have every Christmas at my house and I'd cook a big meal for all of my family. And when the kids grow up and kind of went on their own way, they're working or, you know, my daughter is a nurse and she works and her, her husband is a firefighter and he works. And so it was hard to get family back together. So I asked my wife, what do you think? Maybe we um, do a meal for the community in Agunqua with the idea that we'd get, you know, eight or 10 people to come in and it took yeah. off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so who, well, you just uh, kind of uh, answered this question, but who comes to these dinners? So, you know, when we first put it out, it was the thought was that we would get those folks that are home alone. And that's really what we got. We got uh, people that didn't have a lot of family or family was uh, away and not coming on Christmas Day and they just needed a, a place to go or they needed a meal. And that that's what it was designed for. This year, we had a whole, a whole host of people, people that, you know, um, maybe don't have a lot of family in the area, but are going to do a family thing next week and just didn't want to be alone and wanted to 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 be with um, people on Christmas Day and to people that really, you know, are food insecure and they they needed it. It's it's a whole host of people. And the funny thing is, is it, it becomes a big family meal. Um, everybody talks to each other and people move around and chat with each other. It, it's really pretty neat to see. I'll bet. Yeah. And how many people came to this year's dinner? So we had 75 uh, folks come this year. That's great. Is that the most yet? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is, that's By up far. There. I think the, the first year we had about 20, the second year we had somewhere as, you know, around 50 maybe. And this year definitely uh, was the, was the busiest. And we had mm -hmm. leftover food too, which was kind of, I planned on a hundred and I guess I planned on people eating a whole lot more because I had a lot of leftovers. So I've been eating Turkey for the last week. <laughs> there are worse, but worse things I can imagine. There are. Yeah, it's, it's good. We sent a lot of food home with folks too. So. Yeah. So obviously it's a Turkey dinner. Uh, who does all the cooking? So I, I try to do most of it. Um, I have a great group of people that come. Steve and Donna Howe have been volunteers here at the Gunner Fire Department for decades and they stepped up on year one and were here on christmas they were here the day before christmas helping peel potatoes and now it's become kind of a thing with them they so it's really steve donna and i um that do a bulk of the prep and, and cooking mm -hmm. uh and then we have you know the duty crew that is working they they lend a hand uh setting up tables my wife comes in and puts the you know makes everything look good because i can't do that um <laughs> Yeah. And then I come in like for turkey, it's a little bit of a challenge because I cook this year, I cooked six turkeys. So I got ovens that I can put three in. So I had to do it in two batches. So, you know, I was, I was up pretty early in the morning. Um, How early? A couple of days. Uh, so I think the first, I think the Christmas Eve day, I think I got in at 3am and I cooked a couple of turkeys and then we, you know, cut them and put them in trays and then uh, Christmas morning, I think I was here at, at the station around one in the morning doing this, you know, putting more turkeys in so they'd be ready and getting the potatoes started and all that. Believe it or not, to boil 25 pounds of potatoes, it takes a few minutes to heat up the, that big pot. Um, yeah. More time than I imagined. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was just thinking, uh, so you and Santa Claus were probably about the busiest uh, guys <laughs> at 1 a.m. On, on Christmas uh, morning. Um, one thing I was wondering is uh, this, you mentioned you were in Portsmouth before you were in a gun quit. I live in Portsmouth, by the way. So. Oh, you do? Yeah. I, I, do, yeah, yeah. I worked for the city of Portsmouth for 26 years. Yep. I retired as a lieutenant from, and I was working at Station 3 at the time uh, that I retired. Great. It was a great city to work for. Uh, we did we did a ton of stuff with our charitable association there. That's kind of how I got into the charitable giving part of things is, is through yeah. is through the work that we did there. So is that a fairly common thing with fire departments like around the country to do charitable projects? Um, it, yeah, you know, each each fire, a lot of, most fire departments have a charitable arm of some sort. Mm -hmm. So here in Agunquit, they started as a volunteer fire department in 1901 and it was really completely volunteer until 1989 when they hired their first career people. Mm -hmm. And up until that point, most of the equipment and everything was purchased through fundraising, through, you know, bingo nights or community meals, chicken dinners, all that stuff. So it's it's entrenched in the fire service of, of raising money for the community. When the community starts to purchase everything for the fire department. I think the firefighters that's still ingrained in them and they, they try to find a way to give back by mm -hmm. continuing to raise money and maybe donating money to people that need it in the community or, uh, and I think it's a pretty common thing across the, across the country. I don't think I'm alone in thinking this. I think that with, uh, these kind of efforts, uh, they tend to make the givers feel as good as the recipients do. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Um, you know, going the prep and everything is is um, can be difficult and stressful. But just seeing people enjoying a day where they might be home alone, it's it's extremely rewarding. My wife and I both talk about it, and uh, you know, I don't buy her anything for Christmas. We we don't need anything anymore. You know, you get to a certain age, and it's what are you going to give me another pair of socks? That and that <laughs> it just doesn't make sense yeah. anymore. So. So this is our gift to each other. We we do this for each other. And she she told me, nope, you gave me the great present this year. So it was that's a that's a cool thing to hear too. So that we do this for each other and and the community. So and people ask, you know, can we donate and how do we help? And we we don't want the money. We you know people did donate this year. I I got uh, some significant donations, which I think were great. And what they ended up allowing us to do is buy some hardware that we need to keep doing this, you know, without taking that money out of our pocket, which was great. But the meal itself, I we want to pay for out of our own pockets. It's our gift to the community. So, yeah. And the feedback is, I'm sure, has been great. It's been really good. Yeah, I, I've gotten quite a few thank you cards. I've had a lot of people reach out and 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 thank us and. And some of the stories are are just amazing that, you know, there's, there's folks that, you know, that were nervous about coming because uh, they weren't sure they were going to fit in or, um, and they came and they had a wonderful time and they fit in. And I just think that says volumes about the community, about a gunquit, about the fire service, no matter who you are, what where you come from, uh, what your background is. We don't care. Just mm -hmm. come and enjoy each other that's, that's what we're there for that's a good attitude so are there families and kids who come so i try there was there was not a lot of there was no kids uh well so i was in the kitchen for a lot of it so there may have been a few kids but i there was some kids that came with 
one of our firefighter families here, Scott Bork, uh, captain here, he brings his whole family to serve food each year. And his and all three of his kids were there serving food. So that's a good lesson for them, too. And I did get a bunch of phone calls from folks asking uh, if they could come help and bring their kids because they wanted help. And I, and I tell them, look, we don't need your help. Just come. Being Just coming is helping. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if people see it that way, but I think if you have a family and you want to teach your kids the lessons about giving back and being involved, bring them, bring them and have them sit with somebody and talk to somebody they, that they normally wouldn't talk to. I think that would make someone's day and probably teach them a really valuable lesson too. Are people from adjoining communities like say Wells, York or whatever, they uh, can they come as well? Yeah, it's open to anyone. We had people from uh, Massachusetts all the way to Rochester, New Hampshire, and in between. People mm-hmm. were coming from uh, Portland. I think we even had a, a, a young lady come from Portland. So the, it's it's open to anybody. We, If you can get here, we'll feed you. Yeah, I love it. It's, it's really great. And, you know, the, I was prompted to contact you when I saw this on WMUR, the uh, news in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. And I just thought this is fantastic. And then I, I saw some other news stories about it. But then uh, just a few days ago, I caught another news story about another project of the of your fire department, which I think is also fantastic. And it, ha- it relates to Ukraine. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, last April, while I was at the Fire Department Instructors Conference, I bumped into a guy uh, from Clifton, New Jersey, who was, uh, he was a, he's a former Ukrainian citizen and now a firefighter in Clifton, New Jersey. And he was, he was collecting fire equipment for firefighters in the front lines in Ukraine. And it, it struck me that I had here in Agunquit, I had uh, 20, 25 air packs that had been sitting on a shelf and not been used for a few years. Because at some point in the U.S., we have pretty strict guidelines about the our equipment is only supposed to be used for so many years. But it's still serviceable. You still could use it. But the regulations make it hard for me to use it. So I offered that up to him. And and he was he was grateful. So we we created this project called Maine to Maine to Ukraine. And we collected fire gear from all over New England. The first truckload that went down was in, I think, September. Went down, and it was a forty-yard, a, a forty-foot uh, container of uh, full floor-to-ceiling with firefighting equipment that uh, ended up going on a boat to Ukraine. And then just last week, I drove a twenty-six-foot box truck down to New Jersey and unloaded it to be flown to the Ukraine of all kinds of different fire coats and pants and helmets and boots and. Uh, breathing apparatus and rescue equipment, just tons and tons of stuff that came from probably 30 different departments, all the way from Bethel, Maine to in in, in Lexington, Massachusetts, Boston Fire, uh, mm-hmm. all kinds of places. So it's been a pretty neat project um, to be able to get that stuff to the guys on the front line. So they're, they're there fighting fires while bombs are going off. And if we can send them some old equipment to keep them safe, then um, send as much as we can. I couldn't agree with you more. What a what a great cause. Both in both cases, uh, the dinners and the the help for firefighters in Ukraine. I commend you so much for what you're Thanks. doing. Uh, and I have one final question for you. Okay, for bonus points. <laughs> and that question is: You mentioned to me before we started the interview uh, that you actually live within view of the famous Noble Lighthouse. I've lived there. My family. Uh, so, if you're standing at the Cape Natick Lighthouse and you're looking up towards uh, the Cliff House, 
Yep. There's a place called Ware's Point. And uh, it's kind of the mouth of the Cape Medic River. And where I'm, I'm a, I might be Russell Osgood, but my grandparents were Raymond and Iris Ware, which are the Ware family. And they settled Cape Medic back in the 1600s. Wow. And so I live on the same land that they settled. So I live in my grandparents' house and I can walk out on my lawn and look up and see the Cape Medic light station anytime I want or Nubble Light. And speaking of lighthouses, my, my final question for bonus points is, I'm wondering if you have any comments about uh, the symbolism of lighthouses, what you think lighthouses mean to people. Oh, I, so I love lighthouses. I think that they're uh, beacons of hope. I think that's the biggest thing. They're a beacon of hope. And in the, in the dark of the night when, you know, a sailor was lost at sea, if they saw the flash of a light, that light, they knew they could go towards it and eventually find land. It's always been my kind of take with a lighthouse is that, they are definitely beacons of hope. And uh, this this uh, segment that we're doing here is uh, what I call, uh, it's a segment I do occasionally called Be a Lighthouse. And you are very much being a lighthouse in the community well, of Agunquid and for the, the region. It's so, not again, just me. It's I'm speaking for a whole bunch of people. Yes. It's not me. It's, you know, my wife and my firefighters and the community. They're all they're all a part of it. Absolutely. You're all you're all a network of lighthouses, <laughs> just like the, the real lighthouses. It takes more than one to navigate yeah. people safely through an area. Yeah. So, yeah. So thank you so much, Chief Osgood. I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And uh, thank you again for everything you do. And Happy New Year. Thank you. Glad to be here. If anyone has ideas for future Be a Lighthouse segments, please let me know at jeremy at uslhs.org. It doesn't have to be people who are saving the world, just people who are helping to make the world a better place through simple kindness. Before we sign off today, I want to mention something related to the episode of January 1st, which was all about historic day beacons in New England. I said that I wasn't aware of any historic day beacons outside of New England. Then a few days ago, my friend Craig Anderson, webmaster of the Lighthouse Friends website, emailed me and gave me some interesting information. Help me out, Cindy. That's right. There was a system of unlighted day beacons in the Florida reefs. They extended from Key Biscayne to Key West. Construction began in 1853, and within two years, 14 of 15 planned beacons had been established. They were iron screw pile markers labeled with letters from A to P. Some of the beacons lasted just a few years, and some lasted for decades. They were eventually replaced by a system of lighthouses on the reefs. There were also four day beacons established in the 19th century on the Savannah River in Georgia. The original wooden markers were destroyed by fire during the burning of marsh grass, and they were replaced by iron beacons. There was also an iron spindle day beacon established in 1872 at the entrance to the harbor of Crescent City, California. I'm sure there are others too, and maybe we'll hear from more people about these, but thanks again to Craig Anderson for all that information. Be sure to visit uslhs.org to learn about everything the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers. And if you listen using Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. Do you have a New Year's quote, Cindy? I do. The American writer and Buddhist monk Jack Cornfield once wrote, quote, No matter how difficult the past, you can always begin again today, unquote. I want to mention something coming up next Saturday, January 20th. There will be a special virtual presentation featuring Ford Reiki, the owner of Halfway Rock Lighthouse in Casco Bay in Maine. 
Ford will discuss the history of the lighthouse and the amazing restoration that's been done there in recent years. That will be January 20th, Saturday, January 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom. It's free to attend the event, but you need to register in advance. Just look at the U.S. Lighthouse Society's website at uslhs.org, and you'll see it on the front page under What's New. Next week's episode will feature an interview about Baker Island Lighthouse, the oldest light station in the Acadia region of Maine. Until then, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thank you so much for listening, and keep a good light. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine.